Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 5 of the series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars-to-be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Welcome to 1924 and the third year of the Wampus Baby Stars list. And welcome to City Ordnance Drama. The January 1924 issue of American Cinematographer put it most succinctly. The Wampus Frolic was virtually driven out of Los Angeles by city administration. You might recall in the last episode, I mentioned how 5,000 people attended the Wampus Frolic and Ball in 1923. It was a huge social event for Hollywood. Ticket sales funded a whole beach house, and frolickers partied well into the night. Well, when it came time to organize the 1924 event to debut the newest Wampus Baby Stars to the world, LA officials decided to lay down the law. It was too big a party, too loud, and ran too late. If the Wampus wanted to hold their ball, everything would have to be shut down. By the forceful hand of the LA Police Commission, if necessary, by midnight at the very latest. What kind of dork party is that? Would people even attend? And so a plan was hatched to take the frolic to new, less puritanical horizons. The Wampus Frolic and Ball has found a happy home and a warm welcome in San Francisco after being driven away from Los Angeles by the narrow-minded and unreasonable attitude of the civic authorities of that city, declared Camera in their December 15, 1923 edition. The frolic would be held earlier in the year than usual, January 19th, at the Exposition Auditorium. The San Fran Chamber of Commerce was so on board that they ousted the Butcher's Union who had already booked the venue for that night. Mate was out, Wampus were in. There were some worries that this win for San Francisco may spell an exodus of the film industry from Los Angeles. Hollywood, as the epicenter of all things filmdom in America, was still a relatively new concept. Filming in earnest started there only about a decade previously, and it wasn't until the late 19-teens that the West Coast became the place to make movies. So the idea that San Francisco could usurp Hollywood wasn't as out of the question as one might assume. And they were very excited about the economic possibilities. The cities welcomed the Wampus with open arms. Frolic Master of Ceremonies Fred Niblo was even presented with a key to San Francisco. According to the Exhibitor's Herald, three special trains were arranged to take attendees from Hollywood north to San Francisco. All aboard the Wampus Special! Thousands of fans lined the streets, hoping to catch a glimpse of the stars in attendance, like Pola Negri, Jackie Coogan, who's not even ten years old yet, Barbara Lamar, Hoot Gibson, Conrad Nagel, Bebe Daniels, Lou Cody, Anna Q. Nielsen, and even Strongheart the dog and his wife. The giant typewriter from the year before was brought back, and everyone danced, laughed, and drank well into the night. Take that, Los Angeles. It was Hollywood's biggest party, but it wasn't in Hollywood at all. All to show off the next 13 baby stars 
who were Clara Bow, Eleanor Fair, Carmelita Garrity, Gloria Gray, Ruth Hyatt, Julianne Johnston, Hazel Keener, Dorothy McHale, Blanche Mahaffey, Margaret Morris, Marion Nixon, Lucille Rickson, and Alberta Vaughn. I know there's one name there you know for sure. Unless you're a brand new beautiful creature, moist with dew, who knows little of this world but is ever so eager to learn. You'll have to wait to hear about them all. But for now, let us begin. Carmelita Garrity Don't call Carmelita Garrity a Nepo baby. Or do, because she was. But at least we must give her some credit for not purely waltzing in and getting roles just because her father Tom Garrity was a successful and well-connected screenwriter. Born in 1901, she got her Hollywood start more humbly than her genetic affiliations may have been able to arrange, starting off first in the continuity and script department at Marshall Nealon's studio. After a year or so at that, she took on some extra roles and then made her credited debut in 1923's Jealous Husbands in a small role. Once the doors opened, with a little help from her last name if not from her father directly, Carmelita waltzed on in and quickly racked up role after role. Since the Wampas announced their baby stars list so early that year, it's likely that only four of her pictures had been released, but there was definitely buzz surrounding her. In 1924, she ended up having nine more credits to her name, including some universal shorts with boxer-turned-actor Jack Dempsey. Busy, but she didn't need to be. That Carmelita came from distinguished stock became part of her early publicity. Not just her well-respected writer father, but also on her mother's side, which everyone said had roots in the Spanish aristocracy. Carmelita, child of fortune, read one headline in the April 1924 edition of Picture Play, shortly after she was named a baby star. My mother couldn't see at first why I should want to work at anything, they quoted her, when I have all the money and clothes I needed or wanted. But Carmelita was determined to make her own way on screen, the piece insisted. She was no hard scrabble dreamer, sure, no shop girl plucked from obscurity. But this, the picture play article aims to show, proves that she's the real deal because it isn't so much a need but a desire. One might worry that coming from privilege and bragging about how she didn't really need this job anyway might make her peers think Carmelita was a bit of a jerk, but this wasn't the case. In fact, her friendships, including a close bond with her best friend Colleen Moore, baby star of 1922, are a steady refrain in her publicity. So, dedicated friends, distinguished family, and an artistic, writerly flair were the mainstays of Carmelita's initial persona. Then, in 1926, Carmelita joined the ranks of Mac Sennett's Bathing Beauties series. It's hard to see this as anything but a downgrade. The Bathing Beauties were a series of shorts starring, you guessed it, a bevy of usually unnamed young ladies in bathing suits. 
And while Senate's operation did feature a number of future stars, Carol Lombard, for example, got her start with him, the dream trajectory was appear in the chorus of swimsuits, then get some bigger parts, then graduate to a better studio. I say dream because this was all very rare. Most of the Bathing Beauties did not achieve any further level of fame at all. It was not a well-trodden stepping stone. As Motion Picture Magazine put it in their May 1932 edition, the distance between the Senate lot and the famous players lot was only about a block geographically, but they might have been in a different world. I'm not the only one who is surprised by this career move. In Picture Play, May 1926 edition's wonderfully gossipy section over the teacups by the bystander, they say, Speaking of sudden changes in type, listen to this letter from Carmelita Garrity. She says, I suppose you will all need support when I tell you that at last I have a job. Well, lean on something strong then, for the rest of it is the greatest shock of all. I'm working for Max Sennett. Once more, among other things, I have to unbend and wear a bathing suit. Gone is the Garrity dignity. In fact, I might say I am vampbunctious. I have a new personality. This is just like when Jewel decided to stop being a folk singer and be sexy instead. Luckily for Carmelita, while she was being vampbunctious over at Sennett's studios, he also loaned her out, giving her opportunities to bend back in the other direction. She was featured in the first ever adaptation of The Great Gatsby in 1926. The Fitzgeralds hated it and My Best Girl, 1927, with Mary Pickford. But, given how often she was appearing in the fan magazines, one would assume she was making a much bigger impact on the screen than she really was. I would like to inquire just who is Miss Carmelita Garrity? asked reader George Patterson of Winnipeg, Manitoba in the April 1927 issue of Photoplay. And what great things has she done on the screen to warrant the space she gets month in and month out in picture play? I believe I have seen her in one picture, Through the Dark, in the merest part, and have heard of her in one or two westerns and serials. Yet she is dragged into Over the Teacups, Hollywood Highlights, and Manhattan Medley as though she were a celebrity. I feel George's pain Every time I see online gossip about a new so-called celebrity, the amount of confusion I have reading Dumois stories is staggering. The point is, though, that Carmelita's connections, her Nepo baby status, her famous friends, and likely her own interest in being talked about was likely the driving force behind all this publicity she got, rather than any notable work. She kept acting, kept appearing in notes about Hollywood society, never anything scandalous, always hosting a party or being a supportive friend, playing tennis or having lunch at the chicest spot. At her core, as her career faded completely, this remained just who Carmelita was. She married screenwriter Carrie Wilson in 1934, 
close friend Jean Harlow was a bridesmaid. Eventually, Carmelita retired, reconnecting with her artistic side and becoming quite an accomplished painter. Did the Wampas succeed with their choice? Not really, though you might think so with a glance at the gossip columns. Julianne Johnston Beginning her career as a dancer, Julianne Johnston was days away from her 24th birthday when she was named a Wampus Star. Throughout her career, her surname was spelled inconsistently. Sometimes it was Johnston, sometimes Johnson, and sometimes even Johnstone, with an E. Trust me, if you can't even keep the spelling straight, stardom becomes trickier and trickier. After several uncredited roles starting in the late 19-teens and then more tiny parts in the early 20s, she finally got her breakout role in the Douglas Fairbanks vehicle The Thief of Baghdad, which was released in January 1924. It was definitely the promise offered by this film that got Julianne on the Wampus list. A baby star from the previous year, Evelyn Brent, had been expected to play the princess in The Thief of Baghdad before she dropped out. One of the excuses Fairbanks gave was that she had put on too much weight for the role, though rumors swirled that it was a jealous Mary Pickford who insisted Evelyn be cut. Evelyn, you may recall, just straight up didn't like Douglas Fairbanks and had zero interest in playing a princess. Julianne didn't mind. You might be wondering why all these white women were in talks to play a princess in Baghdad. And you're right to wonder. Well, I could just say, 1920s, sheesh, am I right? What I actually will say is, it was common practice for white actors to play roles of other races, often playing into stereotypes, caricatures, and other racist tropes. And, just because it was common practice, does not make it right. It's going to come up again in this podcast, given the subject matter, but given how often I see pictures of Douglas Fairbanks in full brown face, presented without comment, I don't think I will be ignoring the topic anytime soon. The Thief of Baghdad, an extremely expensive-to-make epic, excited Hollywood and got attention. The newcomer actress who emerged from the production to the greatest acclaim was not Julianne, however, but Anna Mae Wong. The Wombas really beefed it by not picking her. An icon of the silent era, just now starting to get her due as a talent, a creative, and a trailblazer in the face of horrific racism, Anna Mae Wong was launched into stardom with that film at just 19 years old. This is not sponsored, but a new book about her is coming out called Not Your China Doll by Katie G. Salisbury, it's available for pre-order now. I'm looking forward to it, and you should look it up and learn more about Anna May's story. But what of Julianne? If you look her up, The Thief of Baghdad will be mentioned, as will the fact that in November 1924, Julianne was on William Randolph Hearst's yacht the night Thomas Ince got sick. He would eventually die on shore. Or did he? Yeah, she wasn't, though. 
I guess it's a bit disappointing that the one semi-interesting fact about her, repeated all over the internet, has nothing of substance to back it up. I was actually embarrassed when I found the original source was Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon. He listed her, with no proof, and with her first name spelled incorrectly, as a guest on Hearst's yacht. Widely and wildly debunked for a whole host of claims Anger makes, using Hollywood Babylon as the source for anything is absurd. It is bullshit. Now, probably a very unknown starlet being on the list of guests doesn't feel worth debunking for most people, but my job is to talk about Julianne, and Julianne wasn't there. Contemporary news and trade paper reports, including Variety, The Film Daily, and The Exhibitor's Trade Review, have Julianne leaving America for Germany in the summer of 1924 and not returning until the next year. She wasn't even in the country. If you, dear listener, can provide any legitimate evidence that Julianne was in attendance aboard Hearst's yacht the night that Thomas Entz either fell ill, or as rumors continue to circulate, was murdered, if you find anything, let me know. Wikipedia, with zero citations, doesn't count, and certainly Hollywood Babylon doesn't either. Well, what was she doing in Germany, then? Making movies. She appeared in two German silent films, Garrigan and The City of Temptation. Those are obviously the English translations of the titles. Then she went to England and Constantinople and did a film there. None of this did anything to capitalize on the bit of momentum she gained back in America after the thief of Baghdad, though, as it would take months, sometimes years, for international films to reach North America if they ever even did. When she did return home, she tried to spin this into a rather cosmopolitan, worldly image, and no one was too interested. She made plenty of films over the next several years, but never rose above supporting roles. By the early 1930s, her parts were uncredited more often than not, and by 1934, she retired from films completely with little fanfare. I do find it frustrating, and I think you could tell, that what little there is about Julianne's legacy is simply untrue. Attending a party once, even one where someone died, is a pretty sorry fun fact, and her truth that essentially she ducked out of a North American film career for a European jaunt is less tied to scandal but far more fun. She prioritized life experience over career progression, and though it didn't lead to much in the long term, sorry Wampus, I have a feeling Julianne had plenty of stories to tell. Blanche Mahaffey Blanche was born in 1903 or thereabouts in Cincinnati to a dentist father and an opera singer mother. 
Though there's little evidence to suggest that she inherited her mother's singing talent, she definitely got a performing streak from her maternal side. Joining the Ziegfeld Follies around 1921, she quickly got attention as a dancer and as a pretty face. She also made the news by getting a $25 speeding ticket in July 1922. Hal Roach has signed Blanche Mahaffey, Follies Beauty, as a leading lady for his comedies, reads the August 18, 1923 edition of the Exhibitor's Trade Review. Roach saw the girl in the Follies and was struck by her screen possibilities. She has never appeared before a camera, but is 20 years old, red-headed, and Irish, which all helps. She will be featured in two reelers. And thus began Blanche's Hollywood career. The two reelers, of which she made plenty, and the promise of her first feature-length film, The Battling Orioles, though it wasn't released for many months after the Mopas list, got her named a baby star. In a five-year contract with Hal Roach, he continued to put her in lots of shorts, rather than grow her into a feature-length movie star. It's not surprising he didn't make many longer pictures, and true reelers were a lucrative business. Regardless, the unfortunate general critical consensus of Blanche's work appears to be that she is solid to good, and the material that she was given was not. A typical review for one of her two reelers in 1925 reads, Glenn Tyron does some good work with the material offered, as does Blanche Mahaffey, who plays opposite him. The wages of tin will do well enough, but it is not calculated to put you in hysterics. Another, for 1924's Powder and Smoke, says, It lacks the distinction and novelty that the first of this series had, although Charlie Chase and Blanche Mahaffey are capable and interesting. It is difficult to rise above middling productions, and a move over to Universal in late 1925 didn't help too much. They installed her as Hoot Gibson's leading lady. Old Hoot was one of the most popular cowboy stars at the time, so this was an upgrade for Blanche, but the girl in westerns often proved to be a thankless role. She didn't exclusively work with him, though she remained relegated to supporting roles. Regardless, her reviews remained consistent. Take, for example, this review of the drama His People in the April 17, 1926 edition of Moving Picture World. And say, that little girl Blanche Mahaffey is sure some doll. She's good to look at and a real actress. Why don't we see more of her? Why indeed? In 1930, after years of perpetually treading water and never getting that breakout role, Blanche decided to make a drastic change. A dual transformation, announced Pitcher Play in their August issue. Here's another what's-in-a-name incident. Blanche Mahaffey has changed the color of her hair from red to blonde, and by personal choice has become Jean Alden. She is one of the few girls to achieve both hair and moniker transformation simultaneously. I don't know what kind of achievement this was. She didn't even get the word out correctly, as the new movie magazine reported her new name as Joan, not Jean, and neither stuck. It's the kind of move that makes you go, Oh, Blanche, honey, no. Though she did make a number of sound pictures, sometimes under the name Janet Morgan, because I guess one failed name change wasn't enough, success remained elusive for Blanche, and she made her final film in 1938. 
It's disappointing to see how Blanche clearly had such promise her reviews support this, but she wasn't able to rise above the mediocre projects assigned to her. Nor was she able to establish enough of a persona beyond being an ex-Follies girl to capture the audience's attention, and last-ditch efforts to reinvent herself fell very flat. As for the Wampas, they fell flat with this one, too. Please excuse this brief interruption for a real ad from Photoplay in 1924. Scintillating. Fascinating. In bringing to the screen the joy of life that is the birthright of youth, Miss May Murray Metro star, the very personification of buoyant, pulsating youth, has earned the gratitude of theater-goers of every age, graceful, vivacious, full of charm. Her screen characterizations are chaste cameos against a kaleidoscopic background of exotic, colorful settings. The diversity, artistic audacity, and elegance of Miss May Murray's costumes are a constant source of wonder and delight to her audience. Her exquisite taste and discrimination are manifest in the care she bestows every detail of her wardrobe. Miss Murray's footwear is finished with visible eyelets, the identifying mark of quality and style. Ask for shoes with visible eyelets. United Fast Color Eyelet Company, manufacturer of diamond brand visible fast color eyelets. The old movie lady note, that is the horniest ad for shoe eyelets I've ever heard. Hazel Keener, the most beautiful girl in Iowa, the International Society of Photographers' most beautiful girl, the queen of Hollywood, the most photographed girl in the world. As exhibitors Harold said in January 1924, Hazel Keener won oodles of beauty contests before being named a Wampus Baby Star. On the strength of those contests, her work as an artist's model, and little else, she was signed as Fred Thompson's leading lady. Fred is described on Google as an American cowman, which, yes, great, more of that, please. Hazel quickly appeared in a whole bunch of films with Fred over the next year, almost all westerns or sports movies. Pretty fun stuff. The cowman's popularity would soar, and he rivaled Tom Mix as the top western star of his era. Sadly, Fred Thompson died on Christmas Day in 1928 from tetanus, leaving behind his two sons and his wife, accomplished screenwriter Frances Marion. But back to Hazel. Her stint with Fred Thompson, while busy, they made six films in about a year, didn't last terribly long. She was worried about being typecast in rough-and-tumble roles, with good reason. Beauty and the Rough Stuff, read a headline in Picture Play's July 1925 edition, documenting all the stunts, jumps, and tricks she had been called upon to do. She could handle it was the subtext, but she was ready for a change. 1925 was a busy year, and included for Hazel a pretty plum role with Harold Lloyd, 
1923 baby star Jobina Ralston in The Freshman. Though, of course, it's not easy to get noticed while supporting big, attention-grabbing stars, it did give Hazel a promising little push, and I have to assume that the tread would have continued to bigger roles if a terrible fate hadn't intervened. In late 1925, Hazel was out driving when a truck slammed into her car. She was thrown from her vehicle and suffered serious injuries, including an injured back, internal bruising, and contusions. She was rushed to the hospital, where thankfully she recovered, but this would prove to be a true derailment of poor Hazel's steady progress. In 1926, she had only one film released, Vanishing Hoofs, which was filmed before her accident. She essentially disappeared from all fan magazines and press coverage. There were no Get Well Soon features and photoplay for Hazel. She had, by then, no studio to support her, and was so early into her career that there were no legions of fans demanding details of her recovery. While she was back on screen by 1927, all her momentum was lost, and within two years she was no longer even appearing in the tiniest roles. Though she did eventually return to uncredited and small roles starting in the late 1930s for the next several decades. And so went the barely-there career of a beauty queen with promise, derailed by an accident. The Wampus were wrong, but I blamed the truck driver, not them or Hazel. Marion Nixon. Lest you're worried that this entire episode is just going to be filled with failure after failure, allow me to get it out of the way that Marion Nixon has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. A star for a star, baby. Born, well, let's say 1904-ish and of Finnish descent, after starting out as a vaudevillian chorus girl, Marion made her way to California around 1922, doing background roles, and very quickly signed with Fox. In 1923, they put her in a film called Big Dan, and then Cupid's Fireman, both as the female lead opposite Buck Jones. Marion Nixon shares dramatic honors with the star. She possesses a very pleasing personality, dances gracefully, and acts with charm and sincerity, reads a review in the Exhibitor's Trade Review of Cupid's Fireman. Pretty good for only her second feature. Just a few weeks later, she was named a Wampus Baby Star, and 1924 continued with a string of other exciting Fox pictures. This wasn't exactly highbrow stuff, mostly westerns, but she was popular with audiences and critics alike. That little Marion Nixon! reads a testimonial from a theater operator in Iowa in the August 23rd issue of the Exhibitor's Herald. She sure is some actress. My fans are just wild over her. Up she goes, reads a fun headline in the March 1925 issue of Screenland. Marion Nixon makes the quickest trip on record from the common lot to the crowned heights of the screen. The truthiness of that statement is up for debate, but the fact that she went from extra work to co-starring in many popular features in roughly two years is true. She had yet to carry her own film, though, and Marion was getting impatient. She likely took a good hard look at her surroundings, and when her contract was up at Fox, figured greener pastures might help her capitalize on her growing reputation a bit better. In 1925, she signed a long-term contract with Universal. 
Unlike with some of Universal's other new talent acquisitions, Carl Lemley felt no need to test Marion out in serials first, though he wasn't quite ready to give her the reins on her own picture just yet. He paired her with Reginald Denny in several films, which only proved to enhance her popularity. That she mostly played big sweethearts also helped. People loved that. Finally, in 1926, Marion got the opportunity to carry her own picture in the title role. She played Spangles Delancey in Spangles, a drama about a bareback horse rider in the circus. Universal, under the direction of one of my favorite wampuses, Sam B. Jacobson, their publicity whiz, gave her a big push that year, too, to help ensure the success of Spangles and beyond. All of a sudden, she was in Motion Picture Magazine and Picture Play, posing for fashion spreads, appearing in gossip columns. Not the true test of having arrived, but a pretty good hint. For most of her career, though Marion had played across genres, her type was pretty consistently the sweet young thing, which again, audiences liked. But as the decade continued, there were fewer and fewer sweet young thing roles suitable for Marion to play. Flappers were in, big sweethearts were out. She had a choice. Would she move with the times, or risk being seen as out of step? Picture Play had a bit of fun with her decision in their September 1927 issue. Another good girl gone wrong, they captioned a picture of Marion mid-haircut. A Bob was the thing, and rolls in Out All Night, 1927, and Jazz Mad, 1928, followed. She continued with these more adult roles, which she credited in the December 1928 issue of Screenland to her marriage and divorce. Until I married, I could never convince directors I could play anything other than innocent, wide-eyed ingenue parts. Wilder and wilder women, the better the better, cries popular taste of its celluloid loves, says a headline that I adore in Motion Picture Classics November issue that same year. Even Marion Nixon, whose screen work, long ago, earned her the title of the sweetest girl in Hollywood, went jazz in red lips and proceeded to wildcat all over the place. I was about to make the claim that I do enjoy wildcatting all over the place, but I don't know if that's true anymore. Wild Women brought Marion Nixon happily into the sound era, and she continued to be a popular star in some risque pre-code talkies. Pre-code refers to the period of time between the adoption of sound in the late 1920s and the enforcement of the production code in 1934. Limits were being tested for sex, violence, subject matter, and language, as well as representations in racial diversity, sexuality, and gender expression. If you ever encounter anyone who ignorantly believes that people in the past were all somehow prim and proper, please direct them to a pre-code film. That should shut them up. Marion worked on a variety of gritty pictures, such as Scarlet Pages, 1931, with First National, which had her playing a showgirl who kills her abusive adoptive father, and Winner Take All, 1932, for Warner Brothers opposite James Cagney, where he gets the living tar beat out of him in the boxing ring. That said, her popularity was never as high as it was when she was playing good girl roles like in the early part of her career. She married for a second time during this period and flirted with retirement. 
In some publicity from 1932 that made me wonder if I was experiencing a gas leak, they referred to her as being gone from the screen anywhere between a year and two months, according to Motion Picture Magazine, and three years, according to Picture Play. But there is no considerable break in her credits, though certainly 1931 was a quieter year. In fact, Marion kept busy until 1936, though by that time her star's shine had waned considerably. She was still headlining films, but for studios with lesser and lesser acclaim. Chesterfield Pictures, for example, and other so-called Poverty Row operations. She married for a third time in 1934 to director William A. Cedar, and they were together until his death in 1964. So the Wampus, yes, they got this right. She may not be as well-remembered today as some of her peers, and certainly there were others who got greater acclaim, but Mary Nixon was a star. Margaret Morris. She has my first name! This is very exciting for me. It's probably the last thing I will have in common with Margaret Morris, and not just because she was born in Minnesota in 1898 and I was born in none of your business. She was the great-niece of American President Benjamin Harrison and descendant, great-great-granddaughter if I have that right, of President William Henry Harrison. More closely, her father was a wealthy businessman, and according to Picture Play Magazine's June 1924 edition, she had an aristocratic mother. Marg had connections, the magazine claimed, though they insisted that it hadn't done her much good. She technically entered filmdom in 1920 in teensy roles and background work. And maybe Picture Play was right because it took until 1923 for things to really start moving and shaking when she signed with Universal. They quickly tested her out in some of their exciting serials like Beasts of Paradise, which featured all manner of wild animals and daring thrills, and The Ghost City, which included episodes like Death Spectre and Talons of the Night. Ooh. She impressed Carl Lemley and the other Universal bigwigs enough that a few weeks before the Wampus List, they announced that she would play popular Western star, another one, Jack Hoxie's leading lady in the feature-length film The Galloping Ace. In Universal Weekly, they note, In addition to being quite pretty, Miss Morris is a good horsewoman and has considerable talent. It doesn't sound effusive, but it does show that they felt confident in her abilities. Universal also felt pretty great about Margaret being on the baby star's list. Noting her appointment, a Universal publicity agent wrote in Universal Weekly in January 1924, Back of the Wampus Prophecy is the best judgment of 80 men, all of whom have been associated with pictures for years. In the past two years, the two sets of baby stars have lived up to the prophecy of success with remarkable advancement most of them obtaining absolute starring contracts. Mary Philbin of the 1922 list and Laura LaPlante of last year have registered to the fullest extent possible. Watch out, your confirmation bias is showing. No, if we've learned anything from this podcast, most of the earlier Wampus Baby stars had not attained absolute starring contracts by 1924. That said, the two mentioned, Mary Fellman and Laura LaPlante, 
had done remarkably well at Universal. So it stands to reason to be excited for what's to come for Margaret Morris. If she had stayed at Universal. (laughs) I'm not 100% sure why they cut her loose. She was likely on a six-month or similar contract to begin with, but whatever happened, Universal did not renew. The last serial she did with them, The Iron Man, may have been a factor. It was designed mostly to highlight Italian action hero Luciano Albertini, King of Daredevils, but it ended up being his only American project. Reviews were mixed, especially from the theater owners. In the Exhibitor's Herald, one wrote, Had a hard time getting them in to see this, but after much advertising and putting best features on it, got them interested and quite a few are following it now. Another said, Patrons do not seem to be very much enthused over this serial. And finally, getting to the bottom of everything, one wrote, I'm not making any money on it. Poor Margaret was likely just a casualty of less than impressive returns, and so her time at Universal was short-lived. Famous players Paramount picked her up by July the following year. In a way, it was like starting from scratch. Indeed, some reviews of her pictures with them refer to Margaret as a newcomer, and Jesse Lasky's latest discovery, despite being in Hollywood for like five years by that point. Her biggest film with Paramount was 1926's That's My Baby, which was a Baby Herman-esque comedy starring Douglas MacLean and Harry Earls, who was a little person, as the baby. It failed to make a star out of Margaret Morris. Some westerns followed, then a steady loan out to FBO for their crime series, Bill Grimm's Progress, and then the feature, The Molders of Men, 1927, which appears to have been Elks Club propaganda, but little that could be classified as significant progression. Indeed, all progress had seized up by 1928, though she did continue to work sporadically, although usually uncredited, you know the story. Yes, Margaret Morris did rather drop out of sight. Pitcher Play casually mentions while answering a fan question in their Information Please feature in their March 1929 issue, but they offered no further insight. Another misstep for the Wampus Prophecy. Oh, the Wampus Prophecy is success. For some, it must have felt less like a badge of honor and more like a lodestone to bear. A constant reminder of the success you might have had if fate hadn't intervened in the form of a once-in-a-lifetime trip, a contract left unrenewed, an ill-advised image or name change, or indeed, a fucking truck. I've been your host, Marg the titular old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.